Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Titus. We're going to be looking at chapter 2. These are passages, this passage is one that we've been going through in our prayer group studies. So we're going to take a look at that this morning also. Titus chapter 2. We're all pretty well aware that the family structure that God ordained right from the beginning in creation is something that's under attack. It's not new that it's under attack. Maybe, maybe the intensity of the attack we feel a little bit more. But there's also, an, a, maybe not attack, maybe, maybe a, a difficulty inside some today, in some churches today, about what we're going to do with the fact that the culture doesn't totally agree with the family structure that God has put in Scripture. And there's a tendency to try and make it more compatible with culture. So as culture changes, the family structure that's in the Bible changes so that we might be able to accommodate the culture. So maybe the culture will be a little bit more willing to come into the church. I think Paul is telling Titus, you can't, can't do that. Because what God did, he did for a purpose. And it was for the benefit of mankind and human beings all throughout, whether saved or unsaved. In fact, the Christian's going to technically have two families. One is their family that they're growing up in, and the other is their church family. Timothy says in chapter 3 and verse 14, I, Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of God excuse me the church of the living God a pillar and buttress of the truth the word household really is the the word family so that we understand the church is family also we can have a tendency to compartmentalize them you know home's home church is church and the two don't really go together, but I think we're going to find in the passage in Titus, God intended for the home and he intended for the church to be working hand in hand in the same direction and towards the same goals. In fact, the reality is that it takes strong families to have a healthy church. And it takes a healthy church to help and create strong families. And the two are reciprocal. One, one depends on the other. They both interact with each other. So Paul knows that Titus is going to be, need more than just Titus, where he's at, for the church to grow. In fact, he's going to appeal to the older men, and he's going to appeal to the older women, because he's going to need both of them to be very instrumental in teaching the things of God to the church body. And so we want to look at that this morning. We want to look at those things that pertain to the responsibilities of the older men, the responsibilities of the older women, responsibilities of the younger women, and responsibilities of the younger men. In verse 1 of chapter, chapter 1, verse 15, Paul writes this, To the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing's pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled, and he's talking about the false teachers that Titus is dealing with. 
The fact that the New Testament believer is understanding that Old Testament laws are no longer a requirement for them to follow. So that what was once called unclean by the Old Testament, now in the New Testament is being called clean. But he's saying that the minds of the false teachers have been corrupted in the sense that they're rejecting the New Testament teaching. And they're holding on to the Old Testament teaching and trying to enforce that into the New Testament church. And he says their minds are corrupted and their consciences are defiled because of that. They profess, in verse 16, to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. So the false teachers are professing they have knowledge of God. And they have knowledge that God has given them that others should hold also. But the contrary point is, he's saying by their very activity, they are denying the very God that they say they know. Because they're living outside of the scripture that Paul had handed down to them. And the response is, it's detestable. It's disobedient. And they're incapable of good works, much of what Paul is going to talk about this morning. So the idea is there's a combination going on, things that we know, and behavior that's in accordance to it. So look at verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, but as for you, and he's talking to Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. In other words, how is Titus to counteract the false doctrine? What's going to be with sound doctrine? And it's going to be with behavior that is consistent with the sound doctrine. So again, the following verses are not just for expansion of knowledge. It's for motivation of behavior. So he begins with the responsibilities of the older men. And we tried to understand what an older man was in, a, in our prayer group. And the best that we have information-wise in the, in the Bible is that Paul wrote Titus probably in the early um, A.D. 60s. He also wrote Philemon about that same time. And in Philemon, he calls himself Paul the Aged. So we have an idea that Paul around this time is about 60 years old. Our passage this morning, it says if a widow is less than 60 years old, don't put her on the rolls. So we get an idea that at least in that culture, this older man and this older woman somewhere in their 60s or above. But but understand, when Paul says he's aged at age 60 in that culture, probably be like somebody in their 90s saying that they were aged in our culture in comparison. At the very least, it's someone who is old enough to have kids that are old enough to have kids. So it's, it's a grandpa, or it's a grandma in that regard. So he makes this statement, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. And that word to be becomes fairly important because it says what the older men are to be as or what they are in their character. In other words, older men, if they're not actually what they are in their character and it's not being exemplified in their behavior, what influence are they going to have? It's going to be a negative influence. I remember when I was uh, just, just in college and had come home and I was at a video store. You know, those, those were big at that time. 
And in the video store, you know, we were looking for a movie, and we ran into one of the leaders in our church, one of the men that we would look up to. And we said to him, hey, we're really looking for a movie that has a lot of action in it, but, but we don't anything, want anything that's, that's off color. We won't, don't want anything that would be wrong for us to see. And I was really taken back by the response. The response was, well, don't you think you're old enough to deal with those things now in your life? And I went, wait a minute. I thought these were things we were trying to avoid. In other words, there was an opportunity for an older man to really reinforce truth in my life at that time, and I walked away confused because I didn't understand why he would stand where he stood. So older men are to be something, and it's supposed to be something that is in line with the character that Paul is asking Titus to, to encourage. Sober-minded was the first one, or temperate. Wise in doing things with moderation. Avoiding excesses in life. They have an exercising of guidance, and they have restraint, and they've grown to come to that point in their life. Along with that, he says, dignified. This would be dignified in behavior and speech and dignified in wisdom. Dignified with the idea that it's worthy of respect. So somebody has reached a time in life where they're worthy of respect so that people will listen to them. And Paul is wanting them to have influence in that way. He says also they should be self-controlled. Gives the idea of not being fickle or impulsive, but sensible and prudent. Older men have lived a long time in life or a lot longer than younger men have lived in life. And the ability to stabilize or the ability to be prudent, the ability to not have accesses, is supposed to be something that will be very helpful to the church, especially if the church hits times of trouble. And maybe the younger men in times of trouble will become alarmed, they'll overreact. Or maybe they won't act when they need to act. And it could be because it's the first time they're experiencing that, but an older man may have been through that same thing three different times in his lifetime. And he can calm the ship down. And he can steady the rudder. And he can explain from history in his life, this isn't the first time it happened. Now here's how we might be able to work through this. In fact, this is the idea of somebody having an anchor, if you will. Um, one, one commentator makes this quote. It's important that Titus stabilize and confirm the oldest and presumably most reliable elderly men in the Cretan congregations. In all three of the domains, and we're going to look at the other domains after this quote, so that they might be sheet anchors, against the winds of aberrant faith and practice that Paul writes to counteract, and I wanted to know what a sheet anchor was. A sheet anchor is an anchor that usually would be put at the waist of the ship and it would be used in times of extreme emergency. It was, it was there to help. In a, in a more practical manner, the definition would be something that constitutes a main support or dependence, especially in danger or last resort. So he's asking the older men to be this type of support. 
Three things are going to have to be part of their life for that to be there. One, sound in faith. And it's not just in the knowledge of the Scripture, but sound in their belief, sound in the activity that goes along and as a result of their belief. They're going to need to be sound in love. The Bible helps us understand that love is the glue that holds things together. Love is what seeks for what is best for those that it is loving, regardless of the cost that might come to the person's own self. And the best for everyone is God's will. And so these men are sound in love. And sound in endurance. They they don't give up. They don't fall away at the littlest of trouble. They stand firm because they have a sure hope or have come to be in sure hope that God will honor his promises regardless of what the circumstances look like around them. And in that sense, they become the sheet anchors or a ballast or a balancing and support of the church to keep it from going one way or another in one extreme. And Paul knows that he's going to need more than just young or older men. He's going to need younger, excuse me, older women also in this. He's going to ask for the aid of both. In fact, Paul is telling Timothy he's to keep this stuff in mind, and as he goes about ministering in the church, he's supposed to be sharing these things as he interacts with older women, which could be some awkward conversations at times. But as Titus is instructed by Paul, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slave to much wine. They are to teach what is good. The idea of reverent in behavior means godly behavior that extends to their demeanor and their deportment. It has to do with the way that they carry themselves and present themselves, both in public and in private. And then Paul is going to give some negative examples of what should not be part of their lives, but then some positive examples of what should be, or what should distinguish them in their lives. And he begins with the first negative one. And again, these are all very specific. So so most would understand that these are things that are actually going on in the church at Crete that Paul's addressing. To be not sand, excuse me, I was going to say to be not sanders, and that's probably helpful too. (laughs) Because we come with our bag of of, uh, ills, if you would, Not to be slanderers, which in the feminine case, which it is, it means devil. And in the masculine, it means Satan. So it's strong language basically saying, don't be devils in your conversation. We know that gossip is bad. We don't don't equate gossip exactly like slander, but gossip would be sharing the latest scoop, whether it benefits or not. It definitely doesn't benefit the person that is being shared about. But in some strange way, gossip does benefit to some extent the person who shares it. Somehow we feel strangely good about being the first ones to tell the story or tell a story that's kind of big and it's the first time the other person's hearing it and we, we do get some satisfaction from the response. But James tells us that just a little bit of gossip can turn someone's life completely upside down. 
You hear regular stories about something that's gone out in social media that, that hits so many people so quickly that the, the person that it's about, some have gone to the point of suicide. In other words, gossip always has casualties with it. James 3, 5 says, So also the tongue is a small member. It boasts of great things, but how great a force to set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. It's a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and it's set on fire by hell. Slander, then, really would be gossip on steroids or gossip with an attitude to it. It has a maliciousness. It, it really is intending harm. It's intending to destroy. You'd have to say that the one who is sandaling... Oh, boy, there I go again. Those sanders, man, they'll be the death of me. The slanderer has hatred in their heart, and they have harm in their heart. In fact, they're wanting whoever they are talking about to feel the same type of pain and the same type of hurt that they're feeling, because maybe that's the person that causes it. But it always destroys. There's never a good end to it. And there's one other facet in the family of gossips and slander that seems to be a little bit more benign, because it's often hid underneath the understanding that this is just cri critical, no, excuse me, this is just constructive criticism. This isn't slander, this is not gossip. It's constructive criticism. And there's a place for constructive criticism because constructive criticism, criticism by the very nature of its definition does what? It constructs, it builds. But this other part of gossip would really be along the lines of negativity. The Bible would, would phrase it like this in 1 Corinthians 10 and Philippians 2, 14 and 15. It talks about grumbling and it talks about complaining. It's the way the Bible describes what we would call in our time negativity or negative speech. And it always has effect on people. Negativity would occur when we're looking at things from our own perspective as though it should be the perspective that everybody else is holding to. That's why we're negative about it. Because it's not happening by our perspective. It puts us in a position as the judge and the jury of what is going on. And the Bible would say, man, we are in a position of pride at that point. It also occurs because our thoughts are not on God's promises. Our thoughts are not on God's will. Our thoughts are on our own will and our own desires. And James tells us in chapter 4, why is it that we have fights and arguments and conflicts? Is it not that our passions are at war inside of us, the things that we desire? And it gives the idea, creates the thought in the mind that those desires are like an army that is marching towards its spoil. And it is willing to engage in conflict with anything that stands in its way. And so what we might look at as constructive criticism may really be at the heart, grumbling, complaining, because the, what, what determines the differences is, is what is being built from it. 
as opposed to what is being harmed and hurt and destroyed by it. So constructive criticism always has a solution or it works towards a solution. That's why it came and that's why it's being constructive. But negativism, grumbling and complaining is never satisfied and it will never seek for a solution because it's not looking for one. It just wants to get made right what it thinks is wrong. Ephesians 4.29 would, would command us, let no com- corrupting talk come out from our mouths. But only such is good for building up. Th- this is a huge verse. Tr- just try and keep it up for one, one day. In all the different situations you find yourself in, especially inside your home, don't let any corrupt or anything that would decay a situation, anything that would, would take away from what is best, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. But only such as is good for building up, to construct, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace, or it might give enabling strength and power to those that are hearing. So conversations of older women and the conversations of the older men by extension too are to never tear down. They are always to be stabilizing and construction in their force so that something's being built up for it so that both of them are the sheet anchors, if you would, of the church body itself. And Titus is able to depend on them as the pastor in that regard. He then goes on to say, not slaves to much wine. So apparently there were ladies getting sloshed. And not only on the weekends, but probably all the way through the week. It was was part of life. And some of the history of that time period in that area would agree that that was, was pretty common just in general for that area. And it's coming into the church too. And Paul is commanding Titus, it can't, it can't be part of the church because insects are insects. This is hard. I hope there aren't insects in our church, but there actually are. They're, well, I'm not going to say. We, vac- we vacuum quite, quite, and thank you, April, for keeping on those. She vacuums them all the time. But it's excesses. And it's outside the boundaries. And Paul is saying, shouldn't be an example of the older ladies in the church. And in a positive note, he says, they need to be teachers of what is good. Teacher gives the idea of not just giving information, but the idea of urging. And the idea of training. And it's not meaning training like you would train a pet or you would train a dog so they can go through certain hoops. So that the younger woman, women, and these are the characteristics for them that are being taught by the older, isn't just going through the hoops on the outside and the outward activity, but there's actually something going on also in the motivation and in the desire. So it gives the idea also to urge, to go past just giving the knowledge, and to urge to put into practice. And the word urge can actually be taken to mean bring to one's senses, or to shake one up, to wake them up, if you would, to something that is good that is missing. So Paul is urging Titus to steer older women 
to, to take the time and to take the initiative to have this type of contact with younger women. And I think it'd be far more productive than Titus trying to do that himself. And I think that's why God prescribes it that way. So teachers of what is good is more than just how, how do you bake a scrumptious food to pacify all the beasts in your family at the table? Or how to save money just by using coupons? Those are all practical. But it's really talking about beneficial qualities that Paul is going to be talking about. That the, These are what are to be urged. Philippians 2.1 says this, because really after salvation, something really dramatic takes place. As we go through life, life as a whole is a ministry. So we're always serving. We are always seeking benefit of others from a ministry standpoint after salvation. That's why Paul says in chapter 2 and verse 1 of Philippians, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind or on the same page as Paul is, and really it's on the same page that Christ is. And here comes the hard part. And again, just, just try this for a day to really conscious, and you'll, you, it's, it doesn't work so well. It's hard. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Right, right down to the motive. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, and it's not wrong to have your own interests, but there's a but there, but also to the interests of others, and then have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And when you think about having the mind of Christ and you look at the sacrifice and you look at the service on his behalf, it becomes the example to follow. And then now Paul continues with the responsibilities of the young women, but it's in the form of the good things that ought to be taught. So this is also what the good things are. So train young women to love their husbands and their children. And I go, to love their husbands? <laughs> Why would you have to train a wife to love their husbands? Are we not, are we not awesome? <laughs> are we not just the most lovable thing in the world? And do we not really with the sacrifice of Christ and the love that Christ has for his church, do we not present that to our wives in stellar form? I think the answer is obviously, no, we can be really hard to love at times. We could be really off as husbands. We could be really outside the will of God. We could be in a funk. You ever been in a funk spiritually? I don't, I don't know what else to do, but you're just... You're just off spiritually. And the people in the family suffer when we are. And, she's, and Paul is saying to Titus, have the older women teach the younger women how to love their husbands. In the good and in the bad. And through the good and the bad. It's interesting, I was... Um, walking down the hall one day, or walking into the room one day at our, at our church, and I overheard two ladies talking 
I don't try to overhear people talking, but sometimes people are just talking publicly, and they probably should have been talking privately. And I had just come from talking to a husband that was pretty distraught about things that were happening inside his home to him. And I heard these two ladies talk, and one of them was this gentleman's wife. And as they're talking, the wife is saying to another lady sitting by her, and I did this and this, and boy, you should have saw his face. Ooh, you really got him, didn't you? Yeah. And I'm going, that's the guy I just talked about with. So what she really needed at that time was what? Somebody teaching good things. Not somebody that's commiserating, not somebody that is helping and aiding and abetting, but somebody that would have said to her, and that lady sitting next to her, hey, time out, man, I've been there before. And you're not the first wife that's felt like that. Hey, let's talk through it biblically. Let's work through it. And then it says to love your kids. This is even harder. Because aren't kids adorable? We, we were at an auction uh, Friday night, and there was a little boy who had been um, adopted. And everybody was looking at him going, that is the absolute cutest kid I've ever seen in my life. Oh, I could just eat him up. I could eat him up. He's so cute. The reality is that same child's so cute and so lovable. At some point in life, could cause a parent to pack him up in a box and send him to Siberia because they just had enough. They can't take it anymore. There are times I came home from work and my wife had all three kids sitting there going, they're yours to love now. And I'm going, oh, it's been one of those days. And I didn't understand the extent of that to the times that I'm watching the kids on my own. And I'm trying to get stuff done. And my project is being delayed. And I'm going, whoa, okay. I need to be more understanding. I remember walking by a nursery at a church. And again, I overheard something. Like I said, I'm not trying to overhear things. But as I walked by, I heard this comment. Have you ever felt like you want to kill your kids because you don't like them? And I went, and as I peeked in, I went, these are godly ladies. Why would they want to hate their kids or what would cause them? Again, after I was married and after I had kids, I understood a lot more. <laughs> but the ladies in that room, the best that I could tell was, yeah, we felt feelings like that. They're feelings. Let's talk you through. Let, let's talk about how we work through it. I think that's how it ended. It seemed like that's where it was going. Titus 2.5 says they're to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. That's what the older women, the good things that they were supposed to teach. Self-control means not living by impulses. And again, there's many stories could probably share with each other of things we did impulsively and wished we had not. To be pure could be talking about pure infidelity to their husbands. It's probably that. And also referring to the purity of heart that comes with a Christ-like behavior. But both of them together give the idea of living a virtuous life. 
And then managers of their own home. This is translated multiple different ways. And sometimes it's workers at home, keepers at home. The passage we read in Timothy was managers of home. Some say stayers at home. And it gives us the understanding or the idea just, just from the phrase that Paul is relegating women to only being uh, helpful or working inside the home structure itself. But we know from other passages that's not the case. We have the woman in Proverbs buying a field and she's planting a vineyard. She's making garments that she's selling and sashes that she's giving to merchants to go out and sell. She has servants in her particular household that she is managing In other words, you look at the whole picture and you're going, well, the husband's over here and she is doing a whole lot of management that's going on inside of the home. We might say that she was home-purposed in her thoughts. She was home-purposed in her activity. And it doesn't mean that it may not carry her out of the home at times. But, But the purpose is hers. And she feels that. In fact, one... One writer writes this, many married women find this, this home purpose thing, as one of their innate tendencies and their strengths, while the living quarters of many single men indicate weak giftedness in this domain. And it's true. I think God has wired in different ways and and should not be demeaned. It says to be kind or, or good or example of someone that has virtue. And lastly, they're supposed to teach that they be submissive to their own husbands. So so Paul is calling through the older women to instruct that young wives adhere to a particular order that God, excuse me, designed inside the family structure. And I think this, this gets all bent out of whack when you hear it outside of its context. Because the word submission in our day has a very negative connotation to it. In our day, it would look at as being oppressed or subdued or pushed down. And none of that is envisioned by the scriptures. But God was asking wives to align themselves underneath the responsibility, and again, of a loving and sacrificial leader called her husband. And we know that God asks us all to submit to certain things. God asks everybody to submit to government. Unless what? Unless the government asks us to disobey God. All of us are supposed to adhere to and and submit to church leadership. Until what? Well, the church leadership is clearly leading us away from the gospel. We're all supposed to, pastors and congregation alike, Submit to the authority of the church as a whole because they've been given the power to bind and to loose in Matthew 18. Until that church as a congregation does what? Begins to make decisions that's contrary to the word of God. We're also supposed to submit towards one another in our differing roles in Ephesians 5. Until what? Our walk with Jesus Christ is compromised with that submission. So I think, I think I would say that even in this submission to the husband, it's not blind. Some, sometimes we make it blind. I've heard this. If your husband tells you to drive the car in the ditch, drive the car in the ditch. 
I go, why, 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 why? If the husband tells you to go rob a bank, go rob a bank and it's on his head because he told you to do it and you were being submissive so God doesn't hold you responsible for robbing the bank and pray you don't have to shoot somebody while you do it too. I don't think that's what God intended by submission based on all the other ways submission is used in the scripture. There are times that she may not submit if she's being asked to violate biblical principles, or if her relationship with Jesus Christ is going to be compromised because she's being led into sin, or if she's being asked to violate her conscience. Because isn't there scripture that tells us how we are to treat one another when we have conscious issues? That, that's true inside the church or inside the home. You don't get to trumpet with the husband card. And we would never ask a wife to submit to physical abuse or abuse in any way because her husband determines that's what's best in their home. I think Clement summed it up very well. He was a, a church father that was probably just about a generation after Titus was written. And he writes this letter to the folks in Corinth and he, he writes these words. You instructed the young to think temperate and proper thoughts. You charged the women to perform all their duties with a blameless, reverent, and pure conscience, cherishing their own husbands as is right. And you taught them to abide by the rule of obedience and to manage the affairs of their house with dignity and with all discretion. And I think Paul is asking the older men. It's funny, he ends this with just one command to the younger men. So younger men, you only have one thing you have to worry about from Paul today. But it's a big one. Be self-controlled. Think about all the things that are connected with being self-controlled. <coughs> Excuse me, not being impulsive. So what do we take away from today? Application. God intended the church to have interaction. He intended and actually commanded there be interaction between the old and to the young. And that that interaction was to be something that would be stabilizing. It'd be something that would be building and constructive. That it was absolutely necessary. It cannot be done by just pastors alone or teachers in Sunday school or other leaders. It has to be done by the older women and by the younger women so that they grow up in knowledge of the word and they grow up in maturity to be able to do the same thing with those that come after them. So the church continues to be built up in that way. And again, I want to encourage you to take times that are available. We're trying to do it purposely to allow this type of contact to take place. Um, during a time period where we are deciding to meet together um, anyway, something like the prayer group tonight and the men's prayer group. There are times to form the type of connections that allow the conversations to take place even in private that are beneficial to take place. And so may, may God help us as a church 
to be very proactive and to seek out and to not pass up opportunities that God puts in our way, to speak truth into those that are younger than us, to encourage those that are older than us. And may we as a church body construct and grow to maturity, a body that grows into its head, which is Jesus Christ, so that when people see us as a body and our interactions with each other, they see Christ in a way that's made visible. Because some of them may never read the Bible. But that is powerful, powerful testimony of the Bible and the Spirit of God working through individuals that have come to know them through salvation. Lord God, you are an incredibly great God. Patient, very, very patient with us. And I pray, dear God, that you would help us to, in our minds and in our hearts, to be very intentional and very deliberate. Lord, give us the, the courage to not confront and tear down, but Lord, give us the courage to do what's productive, to come alongside and to build up and to help mature. And in the end, dear God, we know that you're really the one that gets all the glory and you're the one that gets all the praise. But on the flip side of all that too, dear God, we're understanding that if we follow your word and we follow the constructs that you have given us, Lord, we have a life that is so much more enriched and so much more worth living than if we stayed outside its boundaries. And we would give you all the praise and all the glory if you would be so kind as to help us in this endeavor. In your name we pray. Amen. We're going to close in a hymn together. Um, as we begin to sing, would ask if you are in military or you are a veteran, if you would be so kind as to step towards the back where Jack is, um, we would just like to take a moment also before we leave to honor you for your service uh, in our country.